On Monday, July 27, 2020, I conducted a series of live streaming interviews to discuss voting rights, voter suppression, and the upcoming 2020 election. This was one of those interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Denise Oliver-Velez. Denise Oliver-Velez has been a political activist and community organizer. She was in the civil rights movement, women's movement, and AIDS activism movement, and was a member of both the Young Lords Party and the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Denise is currently a contributing editor for the progressive political blog, Daily Kos. I'm going to introduce my next guest right now because it's almost one o'clock. Thank you for all of you who've been hanging in with me right now. This is really fabulous. And I absolutely appreciate you all being here with me today. Um, I, I really, really appreciate it. So, um, of all the people that I have met and been friends with on Twitter, uh, Denise is one of my favorite people. Not only is she a wonderful writer, but um, she has a lifelong history of an act, as an activist and an advocate. And let me just tell you, when I was talking, when Dr. Ibram X. Kendi was discussing, was discussing what it is to be a true advocate or activist, one of those ways is because you have a proven track record as an activist and advocate, and Denise does. She was a member of the Young Lords, the Black Panther Party. She's the, currently the contributor editor to the Daily Kos. In addition to her activism with the Young Lords, she was also an AIDS movement activist and a member of the Black Panther Party. She published an, ethnog- an ethnographic research as part of the HIV AIDS intervention projects. She she has a long history, and I, I would like for her to to tell you about her life. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put Denise in right now. Let's see if Denise is ready. Hi. Hi. Look can at, you hear me? Look, I can. And look at your beautiful wrap. So beautiful. <laughs> Hi, Maya. I'm so thrilled you're joining me, and a cute puppy just walked behind. I see some cute puppies. Uh, I'm jealous. Yes. I apologize <laughs> if we have dog noises in the background. It's because I got dogs here and a construction crew fixing my roof. That is okay. I am in New York City, so uh, you never know what loud noise will appear at any moment, <laughs> so it is fine. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. I'm, I'm a fan of your writing. I'm a fan of the passion that you have. Um, you. I, feel, I feel that sometimes people feel that passion is an impediment or something it's not, especially at this time of what is happening right now. We need passion and we need dedication. And as I was just saying to my audience, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi of the Anti-Racism Center said, um, you can't really call yourself an activist or an advocate unless you have a proven track record. Well, that describes you perfectly. You have a proven track record with both. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your uh, incredibly politically active life and can you tell us a little bit about your early activism uh, with the Young Lords and Black Panther? Um, just a little bit of history of both, because I'm sure we could fill chapters with, with your back history, but 
I would love to, for, for my audience to know you just a little bit. Huh. Um, I grew up in a politically active family. And so I, it's hard for me to even think of activism as something that you join because I was surrounded by activism from the time I was born. And I guess you'd call my dad a fellow traveler. He was a communist, socialist, whatever. And I grew up being taken to rallies and Paul Robeson singing happy birthday to me. And, you know, friends of the family were all folk singers, jazz musicians, political. So my first political activism was in the third grade. I refused to get under my desk when, because the Russians were coming to bomb us and they gave you dog tags. The teachers told you that um, that's so they'd be able to identify your dead body when the, after the Russian bombings. So me and two other little girls in my class who were also sort of red diaper babies refused to get under our desks in protest. So I started pretty early, you know. <laughs> and by the time I was uh, in high school, I got involved in more activism, things in Harlem, joined Har You Act, which was a big organization. And um, then I went away to school. Um, I met Fannie Lou Hamer in 1964 while I was at Hunter College and got to spend an entire day with her and she changed my life. Uh, what she was doing in the South, that she was willing to die for the right to even register to vote, blew me away as a 17 year old or whatever at the time. And I was going to Hunter College in the Bronx and I decided I wanted to go to a black school that would be more committed to black issues. And I transferred to Howard University. And it was during a time when Howard students were demanding a black university as opposed to, I guess you'd call it a Negro one. And so got involved there. There were SNCC activities going on in DC and I became friends with Rap Brown and other people that were involved in the Black Power Movement. Mm. I left Howard, came back to New York. I had met a group of crazy Puerto Ricans who showed up in <laughs> DC. And uh, one of the activists on campus said to me, Denise, you're from New York and I know that you know Boricuas and you know Puerto Ricans and you're familiar with Puerto Rican culture. Uh, could you put a couple of these guys up in your apartment you know, and I said, yeah, okay, solid. And they came over <laughs> and they looked in the corner of my apartment. They said, what is that? And I said, a shotgun. And they were like, oh, wow, this chick's got a shotgun. <laughs> you know, I said, it's to shoot rats in the alleyway. But they said, if you ever come back to New York, come and uh, get in touch with us and meet with us. So I went back to New York and I met with them. They were called the Real Great Society. They had been a street gang on the Lower East Side called the Assassins. And they were doing housing renovation and stuff in East Harlem, El Barrio. So they hired me to help form a prep school for high school dropouts in the Barrio. So I moved up to the Barrio into one of the tenements that they were renovating. 
And that was actually a place where a number of people came together to form something called the Sociedad de Arisu Campos, named after the great Puerto Rican nationalist revolutionary hero. And there, a bunch of us were recruited to go out to an experimental college on Long Island called Old Westbury. And there we started the foundation of what would become the New York chapter of the Young Lords. Mm. And let me start with that the Young Lords was founded in Chicago in September of 1968 by a young brother, Chacha Jimenez, and some others who had been a street gang and they got politicized. Fast forward to 1969 and they became part of a very important part of our history that doesn't get talked about enough, the Rainbow Coalition mm -hmm. aided by Fred Hampton. And I want to make I want to make something clear. A lot of people go, oh yeah, the Rainbow Coalition, Jesse Jackson. Uh-uh, that was Rainbow Push. And Fred Hampton said, I am a revolutionary. Jesse Jackson said, I am somebody. There is a difference. <laughs> so the Rainbow Coalition consisted of the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords Organization. It also involved a group of young white, Appalachian white activists, the Patriot Party or the Young Patriots the Brown Berets on the West Coast, groups like Iwar Kun, Most Righteous Harmonious Fist, which was a Chinese American organization. Mm. Later, you think of things like the American Indian Movement. So it was really, truly the desire to build cross cultures, across ethnic lines, a movement of solidarity, demanding land, bread, housing, education, you know, an end to the kind of criminal justice system that we have. And um, I believe to this day that the reason that Fred Hampton was assassinated is simply because he was pulling together that kind of coalition. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the background. And by 19, mm, I'm trying to think of the exact date, 1969, I think it's July 26th, the Young Lords in New York um, kind of amicably left the Chicago organization and founded the Young Lords Party. And we worked very closely in New York with the Black Panther Party. So we did free breakfast programs, housing movement, um, a lot of health-oriented uh, activities around lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. We took over Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, shut that down. Um, and we were also working with the criminal justice system. And we also got involved in some ways with electoral politics because we made demands of the New York City Council of the mayor. And by um, 1971, the Lords had decided to move most of their operation to Puerto Rico. I have to say, people assume that I'm Puerto Rican. I am not. I am African-American, 100%. But yes. 
a third of the young lords were African-American. I mean, this invisible line that supposedly divides Harlem, you know, Fifth Avenue, on one side it's black folks, on the other side it's Puerto Ricans, that's not true. And mm -hmm. there have always been those kind of coalitions. There have always been those kind of intermarriages. My husband mm -hmm. is a black Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. And um, so the assumption that we were singularly one ethnic group. You had people who were Cuban, you had people who were Dominican. And I think that that's probably one of the mistakes that a lot of people make about making assumptions about things that fall under the label Latinx, Latino, Latina. Mm -hmm. um, they either assume that all Latinos consider themselves to be people of color, they don't. Um, they assume that all Puerto Ricans, you know, look like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but that's yeah. not true either. And they make um, assumptions about the voting uh, preferences of people in our communities. It's sort of like automatically, oh yes, uh, those Puerto Ricans, they're going to all vote for Democrats. And, I, and mm -hmm. I have to say that, yes, in the Puerto Rican community in New York, Puerto Ricans mm -hmm. are predominantly Democrats. But I've had people say to me in some of the pieces that I write, they come in and they comment and they go, oh, yes, Puerto Rico must become a state because then we'll have two Democratic senators and a whole bunch of new Congress people. And I say, when was the last time you went to Puerto Rico? You know, do you have any idea who's in power in Puerto Rico? The mm -hmm. political party in power is right wing and Republican. So mm -hmm. why are you making these kinds of assumptions? Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of certitude that you hear from people who, from my perspective, are ignorant. And I, it's mm -hmm. not ignorant, it's called ignorant. <laughs> you know, they don't know the yes. history. They don't know the culture. Um, our school system teaches people almost nothing about Puerto Rico. Yeah. And the mm -hmm. students that I had, because I taught a special course on Caribbean women just at SUNY New Pulse, and my mm -hmm. students would say things to me like, oh, you mean Puerto Ricans are American citizens? You know, and these are college students. So mm -hmm. if they're not learning anything in high school. Um, and that was true for Latinx students, for African-American students, and for the white students up there. Mm -hmm. They know mm -hmm. zero PR history. Um, they know even less about the other different parts of that Latino diaspora. So they know mm -hmm. nothing about Chicanos. They know mm -hmm. nothing about Tejanos, which is mm -hmm. different from Chicanos in Chicago. They don't know the Venezuelan community. Mm -hmm. They don't know the Ecuadorian community. They certainly don't know much about Dominicans. And they say, oh yeah, well, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans are the same. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I'm sorry. But that is wrong, you know? Yeah. So um, that's kind of, how I moved into things and I have stayed committed to attempting in my small way to try to educate voters and people in different communities about 
who are Puerto Ricans, who are, what is that Latinx diaspora um, mm -hmm. in this country? And to be kind of a bridge person, because it's easier for me as a Black American to be able to turn around and speak to both our Black audience, but at the same mm -hmm. time as somebody who has been part of the community for well over 50 years to be able mm -hmm. to address issues that um, are about the island and here on the mainland. Yeah, and, and you do it eloquently too. And and one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is because I find that there's plenty of blame to give to the Republicans and how they discuss and talk about Latinx people. Like, I don't even want to go into that. But with Democrats, there's another issue as well. And part of that, there is an ignorance in how to discuss these different differences, similarities, the differences of the similarities, and outreach, and that's some of the issues that I've seen. Um, and that's something that I'm going to be discussing with Bernard Fraga tonight, because there is a, a turnout gap with, um, with, with reaching out and, and talking to Latinx communities. And so right now, um, one of the things that you write about that I really admire that you do, and I appreciate that you do, is that you talk about Puerto Rico, because um, it has essentially been forgotten, right? Maria mm -hmm. happened and we saw the devastation. I still remember when Hillary Clinton says we need to send um, the hospital boat down there and that's not even a thought that Donald Trump would do. Mm -hmm. And I think that people think that it's just fine now and we know that that's not true. So I wanna ask two, two questions in one. Uh, we know that Puerto Rico statehood is on the ballot again. It's happened several times now. I'd like to know what that would mean for Puerto Rico. And I'd also like to say that uh, Puerto Ricans who are U.S. citizens uh, don't vote in presidential elections unless they're living on the mainland. And I want to make sure I have that correct. Okay? Right. I believe that's correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, and, it, and according to uh, Miami Herald, 50,000 additional Puerto Ricans came to be Florida residents after the storm bringing 1.2 million in total. Wow, right, Florida. Um, and this is a, it's a sought after democratic um, demographic, but it is for the Republicans as well. Um, however, we know that PR is still struggling to get power up. We've seen that they've had little help from the federal government. You know, we know why. Um, but why haven't we seen Democrats aggressively court PR voters in Florida and in New York? And by the way, I live, um, I live in Alphabet City in New okay. York, so it's still majoritarily Puerto Rican, as, so, as is my building, you know, which is, so it's wonderful. So I, so this is one, another reason why I'm, I'm excited to, to hear your thoughts on, on what I just asked. Well, first place, there's a difference between the Puerto Rican community in New York, mm -hmm. which is far older than mm -hmm. the successive waves that were pushed off of the island for a bunch of reasons. The Puerto Rican community in New York was established all the way back in what was called the Marine Tiger migrations. They pushed people off the island, basically people who had lost their land or forced off of plantations and brought here for the war effort and they moved into neighborhoods that were already tenement neighborhoods. And so you had a long established neighborhoods of Puerto Ricans starting in the 
40s through the 50s in New York, in Brooklyn, in the Lower East Side, which Puerto Ricans call Lower East Side, and mm -hmm. in East Harlem, El Barrio, and then in the South Bronx. And they've been there for a long time. And coalitions were built with groups that were already there, which is why you still have predominantly, I'm I'm swatting a fly. That's, that's it's face. summer. It's summertime. <laughs> it is okay. If you have even one door open, we're okay. gonna come in. It's so fine. So, <laughs> The thing is, um, there's been a long-term development of Puerto Rican voting blocks in New York and union organizing among Puerto Ricans. So you have activist unions like 1199, SEIU, and that has uh, a cadre base of both Blacks and Puerto Ricans working together. So I'm less worried about New York City when you start talking about Florida, you have the Tampa-Orlando corridor, which has become Puerto Rican, but you have a huge influence of a pretty right-wing Cuban community in Florida, and they vote with Republicans. Look, you've got Marco Rubio, all right? And Republican politicians, in Florida, there are far more astute about pretending to be concerned with things that are going on on the island. So they show up in Puerto Rico, they make ads, and they also do a much better job of outreaching the Haitian community that exists in Florida too. So they put out literature in Creole. They have Creole speakers, Democrats for, I'm, I'm not in Florida, so I, I guess I shouldn't be pointing fingers, but they have done, from my perspective, a piss poor job of reaching out to the Puerto Rican community mm -hmm. in Florida mm -hmm. and being there consistently not just showing up right before a primary because Puerto Ricans on the island can vote in our primaries. It's mm -hmm. just they can only vote in the actual presidential election if they're here on the mainland. So you have Democrats go to Puerto Rico, show up, lobby for whatever, and mm -hmm. then they don't follow through. I'm not saying all Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. My example of, of someone in Congress who is consistently raising Puerto Rican issues, both from the mainland and on the island is Nidia Velasquez. Right. But I look on Twitter and I look to see how many people are actually following Nidia, you know? Right. And it's not a whole lot. She brings mm -hmm. up issues mm -hmm. about bills and things that have an impact on Puerto Ricans and she's still a mainlander. I defy most of the people on the left, you know, mm -hmm. to name even who are the people running for office. They don't even know who the non-voting rep is. Um, mm -hmm. Jennifer Gonzalez, who is a right-wing Republican. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's, you know, a, a Trump toady. And the new appointed governor of Puerto Rico is another Trump toady. The entire ruling party, which is elite, 
wealthy, and I have to say this, predominantly white Puerto Ricans, right, you know, who right. have absolute, they're an elite. They have no concern for the basic needs of people both in the Puerto Rican uh, island and then the smaller islands get even worse treatment. Vieques, mm -hmm. for example, they've been fighting for a hospital there forever um, yeah. in Culebra. So it's complicated and what irritates the shit. The, the no, you can say it. You can cuss. It's an adult show. It's okay. Oh, I know okay. I cuss. I cuss like a truck driver. We're fine. No, seriously, <laughs> it irritates me that people who should know better, because politicians, are, it's a job. You're supposed to be good at politicianing. That means you mm. have people on your staff who can do the research for you, write the papers for you, help you write the bills, mm. and they, oh, they ignore Puerto Rico. You've mm. got right now, Puerto Rico's suffering under drought and water is being rationed. COVID is spiking and tourists are trying to flood Puerto Rico. Um, mm -hmm. You've had a lot of the schools close. They appointed a Betsy DeVos clone uh, for a period of time to shut down free education on the island. Um, not only do you have the drought, there are still I'm, I'm trying to think of what the last figure was. I think it's close to 40,000 homes that still have blue tarp roofs since, and that's homes. Yeah. So multiply mm -hmm. that by the number of people that live in each home. Think mm -hmm. about the number of people who are still living almost three years since Maria without a decent roof on their home. Mm -hmm. Yet Congress passed funding for PR and most of it's never gotten there. And then what well, does get there, let's talk about the corruption of the governments in power. Now the people mm -hmm. of Puerto Rico rose up and they fought back to get rid of Rosselló to push him out of office. But now you've got an appointed governor who's just as bad. Mm -hmm. So um, I made a promesa which is a promise, it's like a spiritual promise since Maria that I would get up every morning at 4.30, which is what I do, and collect news from Puerto Rico. And I go the, to, unfortunately, most of the papers on the island publish only in Spanish. So that's not gonna help mm -hmm. me educate my readership that is English only on Twitter mm -hmm. or at Daily Coast. Yeah. And then at 7.30 each morning, I post a Puerto Rico Twitter roundup, which I also tweet this stuff out on Twitter. And I've been doing that since Maria and I'm gonna keep doing it. And maybe mm. like uh, 10 or 15 people will say, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, that's really still yeah. happening. Yeah. And <laughs> there are a few reporters and journalists who are doing a good job. Uh, Danica Codo is one. Okay. And she pushes a lot of things about Puerto Rico. You have David Benyot from CBS. But by and large, the media or mainstream media, Puerto Rico is not even a second thought. You know, it's so far down on the totem pole. Nobody gives mm. a shit. Yeah. I would love for you to actually post some of those reporters. I was going to try to look up their Twitter really fast, but I'm not quick enough on that. If you wouldn't mind um, posting those reporters, because um, I want people to to see journalists are doing a good job uh, and, and give them a little bit of love, because we should be giving journalists love that are doing a good job. As I said earlier today, um, 
We have about five minutes left. And in that five minutes, I want to ask, what do you think a Biden administration with a majority in Congress might be able to do for, um, for Latinx communities, for DACA, or maybe even for Puerto Rico? I know that Biden has said several times, I'm not trying to determine what they want for statehood. I want them to be self-determined. He kind of is more staying out of it. What is maybe a positive thing that you might see coming out? You know what's coming out of the Trump administration, but what would you see that could be a, one positive thing that might come out of a Biden administration as far appoint, as PR is concerned? Appoint somebody to the head of HUD uh, who is sensitive to the issues of what's going on in Puerto Rico. I would stay focusing on status statehood, independence, or staying as a free associated colony or whatever the hell, is mm. not going to address the needs of people right now. You have the mm. highest rates of asthma in the world, in Puerto mm. Rico. So you have mm. problems with COVID on top of already breathing problems. I want to see funds for um, released for Obamacare to apply to Puerto Rico because they get a very different kind of um, medical coverage package. It's like a block grant and when they run out, they run out. They're not treated the same way that states are. Me, I'm into bread and butter issues. Health, mm -hmm. healthcare has to be addressed. Housing, housing has to be addressed. Um, those are key. Also, um, the energy situation, because you still have massive power problems. So they need renewables, they need a whole plan. And as long as there are not people heading these federal agencies that are sensitive to Puerto Rico, it's gonna continue. So I would pressure the Biden administration to appoint some people who actually understand Puerto Rico and not people yeah. who, and then, and it's the same thing for issues on the border. He needs mm -hmm. people in his administration who really understand the issues that are taking place in places like Texas. And mm -hmm. it's, it's not enough, you know, to appoint just, okay, we're going to appoint a Latino. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> if they're not a knowledgeable one about the issues, what good is it? I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, I would love for people to follow your work. I know a lot of people already do. Um, in my chat, I have to tell you, people have said, legend, queen, this is talking about you. <laughs> legend, queen, love her, whippa, um, <laughs> R.I.P. Fred Hampton. So yes, Denise, speak on and a real icon. Miss Denise is the truth, Denise. Okay, so you got a lot of love, okay? So Besos from Denise, and Besos to you. I, I cannot tell you how much that's meant to me. I want to talk to you again, see before the election happens, because okay. while today is going to be a massive marathon, um, I want to do more singular conversations about this election and the progress towards the election as we start seeing which voter suppression issues or disinformation is coming out or which issues are concerning you. 
uh, it's a conversation that needs to continue. So today to, um, was a way to, as an entry point for people, um, I know that you told them things that they did not know before, and that's always exciting to me. So um, for all of you who've been watching, um, please follow Denise on Twitter. I'm sure a lot of you already are, but if you're not, you should, and you should be, be reading her work at a daily cost every day. Yes. Thank you, Maya. I really appreciate it. Um, I will see you on the Twitters, and I hope that I see you again because you're beautiful in person, Aww. inside and out. Really, seriously. This old, this, <laughs> let me tell you something. This old lady will take every compliment you can give me. Okay, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. You're a badass, and we will we will speak soon. We're we're gonna get ready to talk about language barriers in a moment um, with Julie. So thank you, Denise. We I will talk okay. to you soon. Thank you for listening to this special season of Obscene Election Coverage and Voter Information. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.